0: The micro-mobility space, um, for us, it's an important one and we strongly believe it's here to stay. Hmm. Um, it, it, it plays an in- incredibly important role to, for example, reduce congestion and CO2 in cities. Such a no-brainer. Uh, it also helps democratize transport in a city, gives you much more flexible options, Yeah, um, but I think. There's a couple of challenges the industry is going through at the the moment, as you correctly said. Economics is one. Um, Secondly, is uh, regulation, um, and also safety. Yeah. And I think for for operators, all modes of transportation, I think will remain important as long as they can fund it, even Mm. if it. As long as it's not loss-making, they'll keep it because it gives them extra nodes in the system. And for a, uh, a passenger, so to say, a, another reason not to use his or her own car.
1: Welcome to the Mobility Innovators Podcast.
2: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mobility Innovators Podcast. I'm your host Jaspal Singh. Mobility Innovators Podcast invite key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their experience and future forecasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing the VC perspective on mobility sector and slowdown in the funding activity. I'll be speaking with an amazing investor who not only has acumen of financial market, but also quite well versed in the mobility and automobile space. He is a general partner of Vector Partners. The fund has reached a first close of €50 million Euro and looking to raise €125 million Euro in total. The fund invests in early-stage startups in the mobility technology sector, focusing on software, AI, machine learning, and data-driven business model. Prior to launching the fund, he was the managing director and head of automotive investment banking in Emma region with BNP Paripass. He's a global citizen and lived and worked in many countries. I'm so happy to welcome Sebastian Bihari, journal partner of Vector Partners. It's now time to listen and learn. Hello, Sebastian. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Hey, Jospa. Good having me.
2: Great. Uh, so today, I'll be spending time getting to know more about you, your professional journey, and your thought on innovation and technology trend in the mobility sector. But to start with, I would like you to share some fun fact with our listener, or are there any f- interesting fact about your career that are not LinkedIn? It's it's quite rich, but probably something you are hiding from others. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> Hiding definitely. Lots of lots of closets. Uh, lots of uh, skeletons in the closet, like mm-hmm. everybody. No, I think um, um, I've obviously spent a lot of time in business and finance. Um, but there's, there's certainly a couple of items that, that maybe don't come through in my CV immediately. Um, for example, I lived in New Orleans for a year uh, during my undergrad year. Amazing place, although I try to avoid it in the summer. It's a little bit too yeah. steepy for me. Yeah, uh, You may you may recognize any way that I've lived in a couple of places so my, my my accent in English is probably a mix between you know uh, New York London um, the, the, the south in the u.s I, I can't wing a southerner but at least I'm familiar with the slang a little bit yeah. but uh, so that's definitely one thing that didn't come through my CV um, second. Maybe is that um, I've been quite a techie from the early days, Hmm. Um, born in 79, so 70s kids, which means I had the privilege to still start um, uh, working with an IBM PS2, you know, black and white screen, 16 megahertz, squeezing the last bit out of the machine, Uh, did quite some coding back then. You know the oh. classic pascal c i a little bit ventured into assembler but sort of dropped it i was just on the on the on the cusp when you know object oriented languages came about and i immediately moved to that <laughs> <laughs> um uh did websites also for companies um that was during the times when you still had to code html yourself you know and uh, you know fool around with with curl and php so I think that that makes me a little bit of a hidden tech nut and um, mm. um, explains some of the things that I do these days. And um, also what I've done in my past, is I, I used to be a bit of a press photographer, Okay. Um, not in a big way, but stuff that made it into national magazines and, and newspapers. Uh, my dad was a hobby photographer, so we had the equipment and the lab at home and a sort of fell into it uh, in my late teens. and But it got me to interesting places. I remember I was in Sarajevo just after the end of the war. So you, uh, there's a couple of things I think I've done that are not very business and finance-like, um, but that that's still part of me.
2: Not quite interesting. And now I can see how the creativity and technology things coming to your mind because that, that's actually I want to learn more because you did your uh, master from uh, University of Innsbruck in International Economics and Business Study, and then later MBA from Columbia Business School. Mostly your career was in private equity and and, uh, finance space. You were head of BNP Paripass as the managing director and head of uh, automotive investment banking. I'm very curious to learn why you decided to become a venture capitalist, because you were doing great in your career. You were working uh, with one of the top companies. And why did you focus on mobility and transportation? Because that's, that's a, that's a very niche area and not many people find it very sexy or find it very innovative. So, so what make you to move into that area?
0: Yeah, good point. Good point. I think it's, um, I agree it's, it, it looks a little bit strange from the outside, but less so actually when you, when you understand the trajectory a little bit better, um, first. I sort of pivoted into mobility, already quite a while ago in the two thousands. Back then, still working on on deals, um, with like car makers, suppliers, um, Germany, the U.S. You know, the good old bread and butter business, components and vehicles. Uh, back then, still, you know, uh, before I did my MBA, still part of the team that sold Chrysler to Fiat, right? So,
1: yeah.
0: Um, I've gone full circle with this industry. I've been there when it was still, you know, restructuring cyclical asset heavy. And and I've been with this industry uh, more or less since then. Mm -hmm. And um, two of my things, two of my hobbies came together during that time. The one was my interest and passion for for cars and vehicles Mm -hmm. and transportation. And the other one was tech, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it was sort of a, starting vector was a natural evolution um, following that. Uh, and the second is probably that I think the transitioning from, from banking to VC is much more natural than people think. Hmm. It's actually, most people actually have no clue what a banker actually does. I think that <laughs> right. because banking is a very wide, 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 wide field. Oh, yeah. But if, if you're investment banking, um, in MNA and, uh, Particularly in sector teams, um, also if you work in private equity, which is probably I'd say in the middle between VC and banking, um, uh, we literally spent decades doing pretty much exactly what we do on a daily basis right now. Yeah. Right. So we worked with management teams, help them grow their business. Whether that's a board meeting, whether that's uh, you know strategy sessions and so forth raising capital uh scrubbing scrubbing and uh, thinking through business plans like Mm. doing them yourself right Uh, the financials uh making investments selling businesses right ipoing them and due diligence in them so um ironically i think most most successful private market founders have come from banking there must be a reason for that Mm. It, it it's a good school and um Sometimes it makes me a little bit stunned about the cowboy approach in venture capital. Hmm. Um, I think th- this is something I see changing over the next decade. Time will tell. But when I, when I draw parallels from how private equity has evolved over the last 10, 20 years, there's, you know, people should look at that and, and uh, it's, it's, not, it's not far-fetched to believe that, that it's going to go the same direction going to institutionalize it's going to professionalize much more and um i think um you know throwing 300 uh, million into into ftx is not going to happen that easily anymore
2: yeah yeah Yeah. that's a biggest story of 2022 but uh, i think you're right what you're bringing is that experience from p fund or coming from banking when you scrutinize deal in a way look at the profitability look at the diligence not just carried away by the hype and innovation and all but you also look the underlying business uh, it's like yeah
0: there's 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 a ton of processing involved right uh, and powerpoint and calls and you name it but but you run the entire thing one way or another right uh, uh, depending on, on on your role and how you're involved and and uh, ultimately you, you don't get any you don't get very far if you don't understand it, yeah. and um, there's not many founders <laughs> in, <laughs> in, out there in startups who really understand PL below the top line, right? So mm, helps. It's,
2: it's it's very true, and, and I think bringing investor like you actually bring a lot of value for them because you are the one who can advise them on those things, and and because the founder is sometimes only have. Knowledge about the technology and products, so they don't know about how the business work, how the cash flow work, and yeah, so- I think
0: yeah, startup team needs to perform on so many different dimensions, right? Yeah. And um, sometimes it's the founder who is um, uh, let's call him a business polyglot, right, for lack of other words, or it's it's a highly complementary team. Um, but equally, I think uh, you know as 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 a financer for such a business you add value on various dimensions right and the more dimensions you can tick the better obviously right oh yeah
2: No, yeah. oh, great no thanks for that uh, and and i i think that's why the vector fund uh, is focusing on this sector because of your experience and knowledge and you did your first close of uh, the fund, which is 50 million, quite remarkable, uh, being a first fund. Uh, it's, a, it's a quite big size this year. And you're looking to raise uh, 125 million euro. Just want to understand what is your investment thesis? What is your geographic focus? And uh, what is the check size usually? right? And what is your investment strategy? Like, how do you evaluate these companies? How do you make a bet on these ventures?
0: Yeah, I mean... I'd say we're a typical, classical, Series A fund. Okay. Um, here and there, I think we, we we consider opportunities starting at seed stage or even at Series B, um, but that's more the exception. I think we're a typical Series A fund, um, which means that we don't, like, like many other funds, for example, deploy let's say 30% of their capital on seed stage and keep 70% for follow-ons very different than that we without, with us it's a bit 50-50 initial mm-hmm. initial deployment um, at series a and 50 50% for follow-ons so yeah. a much more classic structure um, the and and i think the focus on the series a has 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 two two drivers. Number one is that uh, we believe we can add most value as of the Series A. Um, we are a sector-focused fund, yeah. which means we, we leverage our knowledge of the sector, our network in the sector, our ability to, to, to hopefully help these companies commercialize and, and, and make the right strategic decisions on that growth, whatever it, it might be. And the second is that we, I feel in our sector, we are less pressured to start early to get a good, you know, mm. seat at the table at a good deal. It's slightly less crowded than in the generalist B2C space, yeah. right? It's, you need more understanding of the sector. Um, a, a large generalist funds will not regularly go to to its investment committee as the lead sole investor for an autonomous technology deal right
1: yeah
0: um, that is a cyclical phenomenon we have seen that um, it's 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 a less beaten path and again that doesn't force us to 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 go in as early as possible um, and maybe go beyond where we think we are suited most suited for right yeah um, other than that, we're I mean we're sector focused, right? We focus only on mobility technology. Um, many people regard it as niche, although people just still don't get it. I mean, yeah. mobility and transportation is like 10-15% of GDP, it's bigger than financial services, right? I mean, go figure how many fintech funds are out <laughs> there. Mobility is like what five and a half, six, right? Uh, it's a it's a beautiful space.
1: Oh yeah.
0: And and I think we're, I say we're at home in Europe. That's where we're headquartered. That's what our focus is. But we're, we're nevertheless actively investing in the US and in Israel. So we are clearly not just a European fund um, for two reasons. First, I think narrowing down region and sector is just dumb. Yeah. Right? And secondly, we know our sector. We really understand where you need to be. To be able to um, harvest the opportunity, help companies, uh, you know, grow, but also exit the businesses, you need to be in at least, for example, these three regions, right? Yeah. China is an is, is, a, is an amazing and big market. Um, it comes with with hurdles when it comes to the transferability of technology in this space. Um, CFIUS is, is unfortunate. A lot of the topics around AI and autonomous, it's... Um, you literally have to reinvent the deal locally yeah. and it's a market to assess without having a full team on the ground and um, we have a lot of business experience and, and affinity and connections also to Japan but at the same time from our experience we recognize that um, Japan is a more closed off market with its own oh, yeah. system which is harder to penetrate right And um, there's other interesting markets, Southeast Asia, India, which are huge. Mm. um, But where we see the focus at the moment more in the B2C space rather than on on like real deep tech topics. So um, it has a reason we focus on this triangle, Europe, US, Israel, which is um, our, our home turf, so to say.
2: all all three are great market i was in israel uh, a couple of weeks back and it's great to see the innovation ecosystem there even even the transportation like the local transportation is not world-class but at the same time the technology wise a lot of the thing they are doing it's quite uh, quite unique and they are building global company based from Aviv. so it's it's great so you you work your headquarters in europe and you're working quite closely in europe Uh, and one thing we have saw in last one decade the Europe innovation ecosystem or startup ecosystem had start emerging. It, it was not there earlier. So 10 years back, if you talk about startup, you never think Europe as a, as a place to start a company, but in last 10 year, I think the, the there are a lot of startup has come up. And also we saw a lot of mobility tech startup, which has come from Europe and, and they are actually now becoming global and going out and uh, expanding what are you seeing like these many european startups which are launching product in us so what is your view about how the startup ecosystem is emerging in europe and how you think in next 10 year look like uh, in this space
0: yeah that's a good question i it, it's completely true what you said it has really come a long way um but equally it still has a very long way to go yeah um i think that's the honest truth and um and uh, the gap to the US is still massive. I'd say even there's a strong, strong gap to Israel in terms of, for example, the quality of yeah. not the startups. There's a there, there's various dimensions on which a startup needs to perform, and um, it, many of them, I think, on average, they're still behind on that on that uh, global competition. Um, um, in Europe, we see actually several hubs that are sort of important to us. You, yeah. you, you start recognizing certain clusters once you look at your pipeline, where the stuff comes from, and where people congregate around certain themes. So, for example, uh, Germany and the UK, for instance, we see a lot of stuff around uh, computer vision, AI, machine learning. Um, more the autonomous stuff, software-defined, um, next-generation hardware that comes more from the U.S. Hmm. And Israel is a powerhouse when it comes oh, yeah. to electronics and communication um, technology. So you, in, in the auto tech space, you really need to play all three, right? You can't lock yourself out of one out of these markets and sometimes cross-fertilization is, is, is equally important. We also see, um, obviously, opportunities coming out of, for example, Southern Europe, like Spain and, or yeah. France, not really Southern Europe, but Scandi region or Canada. Um, but I think that's, that's comparatively less. And I think, except for France and um, the Scandi region, also less techno- technology heavy. So me, Southern Europe is more... Be- B two C focused um, yeah. uh, compared to to what we see in other markets in Europe. Uh, so, look, um, I think in terms of launching into the US, um, that's 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 a true observation. Um, many of the European startups um, do consider that. Our perspective. Um, we actually only look at businesses that can mm. scale across the pond one direction or another. so we we really ignore businesses that are regionally constrained. Mm. if it's not scalable for really a call it a global um, application, forget it right it's I don't want to say it's too small enough but it's not right for us yeah it's and that's why. By definition, we see a lot of startups that have the ambition and the capability to scale into the US and technology. They do it comparatively less aggressive um, than an Israeli company would scale. Hmm. But you have this this, this this funny difference, right? In the US, they think about scaling into your brother late because their home market is so big, right? Yeah. Um, the Israelis need to scale immediately because the home country <laughs> is small, <laughs> right? they have And, and in, in Europe is the middle thing where they focus first on their on their their home country, which is sort of a midway between going for the continent or not, right? Mm. So it's 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 a funny landscape.
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good observation, and that's what uh, when I met a lot of these uh, founders in Israel. The market is so small and sometimes there is no demand for their product in the local market or very-
0: industry. There's no there's no, There's no Israeli car maker, right? Yeah. So um, I think, and, and plus there's, there's such a deep connection, for example, between Israel and the US. There's such good business relationships that often the first commercial push goes actually is, into the US yeah. rather than to Europe, which yeah. is also very natural.
2: So. which is, I agree with you. And that's what I saw. Like there are a lot of these cybersecurity companies are now coming up in, in mobility sector and their first push yeah. is toward the U S because that's a market they see, And then they will eventually expand other way, but, but first push. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. No, thanks for sharing. I think that's a, that's a very good perspective and in Europe. Yeah. I mean, Germany is becoming like a powerhouse. Uh, I, I seen many of the city and the Berlin is emerging as a global uh, tech startup hub now because of, people are speaking many languages and there is no more constraint of language. So that's also help. I think in Europe, that's also a problem. Like in Canada, I see a lot of companies want to go to France because of the language uh, similarity. So there's French speaking uh, companies, so they look for that. Well, thanks for sharing, uh, Sebastian. Now, you must be meeting hundreds of industry expert, founder and ecosystem person. I see you love to talk to people and learn and exchange, uh, you know, about the future of mobility, how things are changing, how things will be in future. So I want to understand what is your prediction for 2035, how the mobility sector will change in next uh, 12, 13 year. And how do you see the use of AI and technology will transform mobility? Because like you mentioned, mobility is a big sector. It's contribute like 10 to 15% of GDP. A lot of people don't realize because they don't see it upfront, but everything is moved because of mobility. So how you think AI and technology will really redefine everything what we are seeing today
0: yeah I, th- I think people often don't see it because they they cut it differently right they just look mm. at saas right now th- then you have some funds who just focus on saas yeah. regardless of what industries it, it's in right it, there's a long debate about you know can what's what's more sensible for being focused topically say on ai or an end market we focus very strongly on an end market because ultimately we think the priority needs to be on a particular product and an and a commercialization thereof right um, understanding the product only gets you that far right yeah. so that's why we're very focused on on, on end market competence um, i i think both ai and technology will obviously Play a, a, a huge role in the transformation of mobility transportation as a whole. Um, you know, Timo from McKinsey summarized it very nicely once. There's there's a couple of um, trends coming together or yeah. not, forces coming together, uh, which is changing behavior by consumers, which is regulation and technology that overall shape the um, shape the landscape. Um, for us, technology is changing mobility at its core.
1: Hmm.
0: Everybody now know, knows that electrification slash energy transition is coming. Okay, let's yeah. call it an old topic. Uh, please not debate this anymore. Be right? <laughs> the next tier one push for the next generation diesel. I'm like, under which stone have you been sleeping? Right? It's yeah. just embarrassing. Um, digitalization and and connectivity, I think are gonna be catalysts for a very large chunk of the opportunity over the next one or two decades. And AI will play a massive role, but obviously I'm not saying it comes after digitalization connectivity, but connectivity and digitalization create the data uh, AI can work with, right? So it, it comes in tandem. Right. Yeah. Um, now, what what does it all mean in the end? I think we think um, two major things will will, will change for for uh, over the next ten years. The one is that the the economics of of mobility will change. Right. Mm. And I'll give you an example. Think of predictive maintenance. Right. Yeah. This is something that Connectivity, digitalization, meaning the availability of data in a vehicle and AI, the tool to analyze that data, will allow you to um, identify issues before they arise, right? Hmm. And th- think you're a truck driver, right? Uh, you're on the road, yellow, la- <laughs> yellow light, ooh, not good, right? Yeah. What does it mean? It means. Uh, two-day outage order parts repair not good right or your cab driver right uh cab drivers or uber drivers um, they it depends on the country in the region they pay high insurance um for situations where 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 they need to be insured against um vehicle outage right yeah. because not having a car for one day is one day less earnings right name it um so predictive maintenance means you're transforming um uh, an unplanned two-day outage Hmm. into a two-hour pit stop right the system tells you with high probability this is going to be the issue or likely the issue with a high probability um it's integrated in the value chain meaning it, it knows where you're driving it um it it gives you Options on where you can have these problems fixed on your routes,
1: yeah. and you
0: can pre-order or pre-pre-order uh, the parts, this right? So, and and now think think the economics of a tractor, right? Two days outage versus like two hour pit stop, right? You can do the math, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a good example how how what's really changing the mobility under the hood will have a huge economic impact, mm. and we're talking big big markets here. Um, but equally, asset utilization, right? Mm. I mean, you can you can look at cars as um, sort of almost some of the most expensive consumer goods, like twenty k, fifty k, hundred k, with a utilization rate of four five percent. It's embarrassing. It's actually yeah. always just sitting around, <laughs> right? Now the car ownership stop now Bollocks, right? It's not going to not not going to happen. Will it change? Yeah, the mix will definitely change, right? Um, um, but here, technology obviously will play a big part, right? Um, uh, with more and more automation over the next fifteen years, you can drive utilization up of vehicles, right? Um, and the other the other thing is obviously. A, which is for us at the moment a little bit the holy grail because this is what the industry has completely bunked and missed so far is software upgradability of vehicles.
1: Yeah,
0: A vehicle you buy is just technologically locked in literally two years before you bought it, right? I mm. mean, you know cell phones, right? Yeah. How old are these smartphones? Like 10, 15 years, right? Are you going to buy for 100K a car you've that's three, four years old? No way. Right, so the, 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 this is changing a lot, and I think this is where tech tech immobility mm-hmm. will play a huge role in changing how assets are being utilised and how they're being protected from the technological obs, obsolescence. Right, yeah. it's pretty straightforward, and a lot of the topics we look at actually deal with these things.
2: Mm. very interesting you know i i really loved your answer because uh, here you're not making prediction about the fancy technology like you said you don't focus on product you focus on the end use and end use is economics and uh, utilization yeah.
0: then there needs for us when we look at businesses there needs to be a real economic value creation there needs to be a real case in terms of why will people want to use this right does it does it make somebody's life better Hmm. and not just feel good but is he is he or she willing to pay something for it
2: yeah yeah no that that's why i loved your answer because that's that's what a lot of people miss because they bet on technology but they forgot about the the use case or economics Uh, i mean Technology can be good, but if it's costing you hundreds of dollars, nobody will use it. So it ultimately, it has come to the economics and utilization.
0: It sounds easier than it is. It goes back to the old problem, right? Or the old sort of imperative. Are you solving a concrete problem? Or are you having a technology and you and looking for an application? <laughs> right? Now, Neither can be wrong, to be frank, right? Um, but for us, it's important. It really solves a problem.
2: Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And in fact, I, I look at your website and I saw the company you have invested. So right now you have five companies which are published and I probably you are doing more due diligence with other companies. But these five companies, what I found interesting was these five companies are actually solving five different problems, like autonomous yeah. mobility, micro mobility, traffic management, predictive maintenance, which you just ma- mentioned, data analytics. And I would love to you know, know your perspective. Why did you invest in this company? Because I think, like you mentioned, you didn't invest in the company. You invest in this end use. How these underlying technology will change the thing. So, so you talk about the self-driving vehicle or robotaxi, how it will change. Now, Cruise and Waymo, they are deploying robotaxi everywhere now in the US. They are getting permission. They are they are looking to expand from California, Texas, uh, going to different places what is your prediction for 2025? Like, will we see mass deployment of robotaxi or you feel we still you know, see pilots going on and, and it will be like that? And just one question I want to add because you invested in a startup which is uh, building a LIDAR-based system, like an advanced LIDAR-based system. But uh, there are some companies which are actually doing this vision-based sensing approach, uh, especially ta- Tesla and Toyota. They are doing... The visitors. Mm-hmm. I saw a couple of companies in, in Israel which are using this image-based approach rather than lidar-based mm-hmm. approach. Which technology you feel is better, lidar or image? I mean, I know you, they there may be some personal bias because they invested in a in a in a startup, but why you what do you feel about this image-based uh, sensing approach?
0: Okay, coming to your first question: autonomous 2025. Interesting topic. I think my, my base observation is that the press there has gone sort of full circle. Hmm. First from completely uselessly hyping it, meaning in 2022, everybody's gonna have an autonomous car. That's how it sounded. And now treating is treating it as if it would never happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> Complete bollocks. <laughs> truth, truth is always somewhere in the middle. I think uh, people who've been in this industry new two things first the last mile is super hard right mm. um, like with everything in life right uh, it's running the last two miles on the marathon good luck yes, yes. Right? <laughs> it's the same there and that's particularly painful because it's like a 180 mile marathon right then you're yeah. running a lot 2 you're like man i really can't anymore but that's how it is because that's how hard it is um the second thing that i think people in industry knew all along that cost is a topic which means that both from from an application point of view and from a sort of a investment point of view um, it was pretty clear that commercial applications are the way to go right so all this you know the talk about end-user autonomous um, vehicle technology availability in the short term um, was 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 way too hyped. At this, at the same time, and I think um, clearly, uh, way more. For example, they know there's still uh, quite some challenges ahead, but at the same yeah. time, they're way further than people think, right? Yeah, and. They are in the process of they have their strategic rollout plan i think the the last license in in san francisco is outstanding Mm. but next year i expect them to start rolling out into way more cities than people expect right Mm. so you you will see over the next year's step-by-step step-by-step commercial deployment of these things what where you will also see autonomous systems in place increasingly is in geofenced areas right mm. uh, classic um, um you know uh harbor side vehicles stuff like that right construction is a is a, is, a, is a different uh, it's a different place because that's i'd say slightly technologically a different different ball game yeah um but um you will see some some deployment over the next um two three years um, I'm confident in that right
1: um
0: in terms of lidar um I'm obviously biased but I I, I, I look at this I look at this quite cynically um I, th- I think the ambition must must be to build an AV stack and an ascending capability that's better than a human, right? Mm. Otherwise, why the hell do it, right? To be frank,
1: yeah. a
0: human will always be cheaper than, 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 than an AV stack, right? So if it's not better, and I'm not just talking being able to, to drive 24 hours, but to see more than a human, then why do it? Now, with a camera, uh, you, a camera can see much more than a human eye can see. Um, but at the same time, it would be illogical for me to assume that I'm not using other sensors that are available um, to 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 achieve that goal. So th- there's a lot, there's a little bit of an Ill- illogical element in this in this view. Hmm. It's most it's mostly pushed for selfish reasons, saying, "Oh, it's vision only," um, um, and often it's a bomb cost problem, right? Hmm. It's uh, hmm but that but that goes a little bit back to how car makers are pricing their vehicles right in the past the world worked as follows um you buy a vehicle say it's 40k you easily add on another 10 15k on on extra equipment right yeah which means that ultimately then the the volume on the extra equipment was comparatively low right so 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 with software upgraded vehicles, the, the mindset needs to shift. You need to push out as much as possible um, uniform hardware and can then, on a software basis, upgrade or unlock uh, features, which is yeah. pretty much where Tesla is way ahead of the, of the industry. And that changes the economics a bit, and that will allow you to, let's say, put more hardware out uh, than, 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 than you see at the moment. Uh, the OEMs are not using LIDARs because they're bad or they're not there Mm. is because I could could go on for this but don't quote them (laughs) (laughs) there's there's lots of other reasons Mm -hmm. And, and the second thing is that there is for the foreseeable future safety remains a large concern from regulators from consumers right and you saw that Tesla had to pedal back and put back, you know, radar sensor or, or ultrasound sensor, I forgot what it was back into yeah. the, the sensor stack. Why? Because there's, there's only so much, you can do a lot with vision in terms of uh, depth measurement. Right. But there is a limit to that. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, you know, kicking a, a radar or an ultrasound sensor out of the vehicle is is dumb because, yeah, it makes it less complex. I get that. And sensor fusion is tricky and so forth. But the component itself is probably dirt cheap, right? Hmm. LiDAR, that's expensive. So not taking a LiDAR on board for pro- yeah. cost reasons. I get that. But uh, find another way to make use of it, right? Because hmm. all these sensors are made for very different purposes, right? Yeah. A lidar sensor can detect a v- like a flat tire lying on the highway, two hundred meters ahead while you're going high speed on the highway. No other sensor can really do that, right? So, think about all the the goodies they give you, and then it's a it's a balancing question of cost and functions, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, no, I I think you're right. Uh, it's and that's what some other guests mentioned. It's a it's a trade off between the cost and the accuracy. So, do you need too much high accuracy you need to pay more money so probably in some vehicle you need more accuracy and in some area or some places you don't need that accuracy so you use so i think both technology will survive but i think also we will see more innovation in the lidar space so probably the cost will come down in future and then we will see more mass deployment do you do you feel that as well yeah Uh,
0: absolutely i think uh, fmcw is the not obvious but sort of that's that's a sort of a next gen product, right? Yeah. Um, tricky thing there is for FMCW. For, for many of those, uh, you need lasers, for example, that are that are not yet available in industrial scale manufacturing. Yeah. So even if you have the technology, where do you take the laser from? Or the lenses degrade, or the temperature. So so we we obviously in the background see a lot in terms of the b sample results from the oems when they test the lidars and an fmcw hasn't impressed us yet in terms of mm. b sample results but i can't speak for the entire industry there's a there's, there's a lot more happening and behind the the scenes
1: yeah
0: it feels like it's the next thing right uh it's not entirely there yet.
2: So we'll, we'll see more innovation but with Investors,
0: fmcw you can go much cheaper
2: much cheaper than that. no great uh, thanks thanks for sharing that perspective now the other company you invested is in working in a micro mobility space and uh, micro mobility i would say it's it's emerging as a good option it's like four five year old industry not not long ago i was in tel aviv and the use of this e-bike and e-scooter was crazy because everywhere, everywhere you see those vehicles. Uh, recently, NACTO published a report uh, that about half a billion trips in US has been taken place on bike share, e-scooters, another micro mobility system in last uh, twenty years or twenty. Oh, sorry, last twelve years. But micro mobility startups are not feeling the same way. I mean, we read some news about the cash flow issue the low profitability the vehicle life cycle and and so there are a lot of push and also the cities are pushing more and more regulation because they want to restrict the number of vehicle in the city and all how what are your views on micromobility and how do you feel the sector will evolve in next few years because Earlier, the VCs were pushing money in, in the sector and they were feeling micromobility will take over. Like it will be taking over the Uber and Uber will be gone and the micromobility will survive. But now we have a different reality. So how do you see this sector now? Um,
0: yeah, no, look, the micromobility space, um, for us, it's an important one. And we strongly believe it's here to stay. Hmm. Um, it. it it plays an incredibly important role to for example reduce congestion and co2 in cities such a no-brainer uh, it also helps democratize transport in a city gives you much more flexible options yeah. but i think there's a couple of challenges the industry is going through at the moment uh, at the moment as you correctly said economics is one um, secondly is uh regulation um, and also safety. Yeah. And I think for for operators, all modes of transportation, I think will remain important as long as they can fund it. Even mm. if it, as long as it's not loss making, they'll keep it because it gives them extra nodes in the system. And for a uh, a passenger, so to say, a, another reason not to use his or her own car, right? And so there, there's a strategic importance to it, to both the operators, but also the cities, which is why we think it will definitely stay. Um, the, the cities are the ones we think are actually the most, strong, the most strongly um, pushing for change. Coming from the regulatory side. Yeah. But that regulatory push ironically fosters the adoption of technology that also allows you to become more profitable. Drover, mm. for example, the very invested is a very good example where the, cit- the cities are just fed up with scooters lying around all over the place. Right. Mm. Now, um, it, it's a little bit unfair to scooters because you could also say, well, cities plastered with cars, right? It's like, are you kidding me, right? It's like <laughs> 99% of everything is cars, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit unfair, but the cities want to use it in, a, in an orderly way. And there is technology available, which is by the way, the one we invested in that allows you to very accurately determine the position of such a scooter you can't just do it with gps gps particularly in in, in, in cities with lots of high rises are, are, are not good enough there's, there's lots of different ways of doing this um, but uh drover our portfolio company does this um uh, in combination with computer vision mm. which means that they just don't just exactly know where the scooter is but they also know they understand the context of where the scooter is right what surface am i riding on right is it wet is it dry is it is it is it gravel right am i on the side on the curb or just off the curb right and so that's that's obviously convenient uh, or helpful to regulators as well as the operators right because the operators you don't have to Fish around with your phone and, yeah. and hope it's it's compliant parking, right? No, you know, right? You don't have to stay a block outside a no-go territory because the GPS is going haywire. No, you can literally park right next to it. So it, it will add a lot of comfort for for, for uh, municipalities, but also for um, for operators because when you look at the PL of an operator. There's still a lot of labor cost involved oh, searching yeah. the scooters. It is it is really sad in terms of how much money they need. You know, and then you look at the map and it says the scooter is here, but it's actually behind a wall or in a garage around the mm-hmm. corner, right? It's like 40 yards away and you can't find it, right? Yeah. It costs a lot of time and that kills not kills the profitability, but it it, it shoots a nice hole in your PL, right? So the guys from Drover, they knew they were ex-scooter operators. They knew exactly what the what the PNL problem of the operators is, and developed technology to address that, to make to help to help make e-mobility in cities, um, in the micro mobility space, make it profitable. Right. Mm -hmm. So we think there is technologies that 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 really. Can play a role in, in, in changing that. You know? And um, there's another reason why I think it's going to stay around. Olaf from, from Red Blue, you know, Olaf has also pointed it out quite quite correctly. It's like, yeah, you know, investing or subsidizing urban mobility is much better money spent than subsidizing car traffic one way oh. or another, right? By fuel, and so forth. The impact on CO2 reduction on behavior. Uh, management is is significantly more sensible right so um, I think micro mobility is here to stay it's a huge market Um, but I think the times are over where uh, the operators are swimming in money and can subsidize Mm -hmm. um, their operations
2: so so now they need to tighten up their belt and and look for innovative way to survive and and reduce their costs and I think what you mentioned is absolutely right
0: yeah absolutely absolutely Great. avoid fines get your pll in order sort out insurance safety you know find the black sheep in your in your rider fleet you know all yeah. these things <laughs> all the stuff you can do um and maybe earn some revenue because yeah. the beauty with the drover model is you can use the camera for all sorts of other stuff yeah you can or, capture or... data on potholes parking signs, parking spots whatever right um, why don't you tap into new revenue pools? You're driving around with a data gatherer all the time. Use it.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a and it's a, it's a data which is can capture the small the remote part of the city because generally the scooter goes to the remote part of the city, not only on the on the main road, but you they go totally inside the communities and localities. So you can find the data and collect the data from there. No, that's great. No, I I agree with you. It will it will stay here. It's only the model will change and like you mentioned, the free money is over. So now the, the real work will start like in a, in a ride hailing sector happen. So no more free money and they need to be innovative to, to work.
1: Yeah, I agree, I agree.
2: Great. Now you briefly mentioned about this um, sector about the preventive uh, maintenance, like how it will change the economics. Uh, you work in an automotive sector for quite some time. Like you mentioned, you work with all these automotive company on their business plan strategy. And I must say, like, automotive sector, like, everybody agree with that, is going through a once-in-a-generation transformation change because of this electrification, which you mentioned. It's it's given now. Like, don't talk about it. Don't say that it will happen or not. I mean, it's it's happening, and it will happen. And the autonomous vehicle, like you rightly mentioned earlier, media was very bullish, and now they are very negative, but the truth is in the middle. One of the things happening with the technology is, like, uh, the a lot of data we are collecting from these vehicles. So there was there was a study done by McKenzie which say that uh, these connected car can create up to 25 gigabyte of data per hour. So can imagine like huge data and all kinds of aspects. Vehicle is driving at what speed, what part is moving, which part is depreciating more or utilizing more. What are the opportunity, future opportunity you see in the sector? Because I'm pretty sure you must be looking for new startups in this area so what kind of startup you're looking given your background in automotive sector and uh, you already invested in preventive health and data analytics set uh, data analytics startup. so what's your view how the space will change in future so in future probably the maintenance workshop will change you don't need really traditional workshop uh, to book and schedule so vehicle will go and and like what are the what are your prediction in this area
0: um, yeah, no, it's, that's a good topic. It's, it's true. The data volumes will, will increase, um, phenomenally the, the core problem at the moment is that the car makers in many cases don't have access to that data. Mm. They can't even use it. Why? Because it's a locked box system. Right? or their system actually does not allow them to, to aggregate the data and then use it or make it available to, let's say, a third party. Mm-hmm. So this is where yeah. um, EE architecture comes in. This is for us, when, when you look at this, the strategies of the car makers over the last one or two years, you will see the term software upgradability pop up a lot. Yeah. They've finally at least verbally gotten onto that. Tesla is like fifteen years ahead on this. The key issue we still see is that the electronics and electric architecture of vehicles is like beyond outdated. Hmm. Decentralized it's it's a, it's a decentralized system with lots of stupid heavy ECUs. And uh, a, a, a a good example where you can see that is that this semiconductor shortage at the moment, which yeah. restricts car makers from from churning out more vehicles, I mean, their volumes are down like 15, 20%, which is insane,
1: right? Yeah.
0: Is partly due to the fact that they can't get semiconductors. And why? Because these semiconductors are so old that nobody wants to produce them anymore. And when they are telling you, oh, don't worry, the semiconductor crisis is over in one or two years, it's a blatant lie or it's complete ignorance of reality. They're not going to get these anymore. Mm. Tesla is, is way less exposed to that because Tesla has a, has a multi-domain system, right? So they work with a sort of a 4 brain system, which is a much more centralized architecture. Um, my car has like 250 different ECUs. The headlight alone has seven, right? <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. So, the data volumes you will see at the moment, I feel, is a, is a luxury topic because you cannot yet monetize them. You don't have access to them. So, I think the big step that needs to happen is stepping up the EE architecture of vehicles. And that allows you to abstract software from hardware you know, treat cars as servers, up, upgrade them on the go, yeah. maintain them on a regular basis. Um, but there's two challenges and these challenges are quite big. The one is that the current suppliers of this electronics, let's call it stuff, are the big tier one suppliers and they have mm. absolutely zero incentive to, to go there Change. because they, they can only lose. They can only lose. If you go to, say, a Bosch and say, hey, look, instead of your 60 ECUs, I'm going to buy like four, right? You think they're going to be happy about that? (laughs) And the second thing is that the car makers, in order to really utilize that, need to transform from a hardware, software-driven development process a software to hardware driven development process and they're struggling it's hard because you need to change your culture you need to change um the type of software engineers that you that you need changing processes is so hard and look at volkswagen how many how many employees does volkswagen have 600 700 i forgot what the exact number is that's how big the problem is right you don't just make this a software company from day to tomorrow. They're um, they, they are taking some very bold moves in this regard, but it's very, very hard.
1: Mm.
0: So you, taking this together, the obvious data opportunity and what the obstacle is, is, is the industry. Not necessarily because they don't want to. Um, that'd be mean to say. Yeah. I think yeah. we have to acknowledge it's very hard could they do more yeah way more yeah so what what they don't do right now will make them vulnerable mm-hmm. to new entrants and I think on the electrification side competition from Asia is coming yeah um, I think that's that's um, that's clear yeah um, it remains to be seen how how vulnerable um, they can be. The incumbents on, on the attack on software upgradable vehicles. So Tesla, for example, is way ahead of its in its architecture, and yeah. it's one of the reasons why why people buy it, right? Because they get an upgrade, even even if it's senseless. It doesn't matter. It they feel it's it's not something that that's outdated five years down the road, right? Oh yeah. So as consumer behavior shifts. Um, I think the industry needs to
2: really, really.
0: eat it up like massively yeah. but it's hard. Huh? I, I fully acknowledge that.
2: Yeah. I, I, I really love your point about this you know changing approach to having hardware to software. basically right now they have hardware and they are building software to use that, but actually it should be other way. It should be software. I'll give you a good
0: example. Uh, many OEMs are still organized around component or slash purchasing groups. So there's an there's a there's there's an own sort of team that deals with infotainment, center stack, there's a team that deals with suspension, there's a team that deals with um um say ADAS equipment, you name it, right? One team does the interior. That made a ton of sense when the stuff wasn't that integrated. Yeah. Right. Now <laughs> the guy Wants to see the the, the real time video feed in his infotainment system, and he wants to do something with it, right? So you you're already talking to two different companies, right? This is tricky, right? And um, you need we always compare it to spinal surgery in a human being. You don't do this over the weekend, right? This is this is serious surgery. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it
2: needs to be done. Yeah. So maybe in future, we will have a, a software CEO or a CEO with a software background heading automobile oh, company.
0: Absolutely. Look at the CTO of Stellantis, uh, of, of, of FCA, um, who came in from Amazon.
2: Mm. So we oh. already seeing the change. I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing. So, yeah. so we already see these changes. Like uh, like you mentioned, you need to change yeah, the absolutely. mindset. Absolutely.
0: The but... but Still, there we, we we see a lot of CTOs staying around for one or two years and then just throwing the towel and then they move on, right? And then it's back to square one. Yeah, the CTOs are not stupid; they know exactly what needs to be done. And then, but it's a, it's a political fight, it's a resource fight, it's designed. It's tough. Huh?
2: It's tough. No, I mean it's it's not easy. You know, this uh, it's a hardware-driven industry, and suddenly you tell them it makes no sense, but but i think in future like what happened with nokia that's a big lesson for all all other companies uh, nokia was a giant but they didn't upgrade they didn't work on the what customer were looking and they are out
0: yeah it's what what made nokia particularly vulnerable was the t- was the ticket size of the purchase mm-hmm. right Phones were dirt cheap, so they could be replaced very quickly. Now, this is very different with vehicles, right? Vehicles are much more expensive. And also, I think what Tesla has shown, what Apple has shown, it's not so easy to just build a car. I mean, all the the funky gimmicks aside, right? To put a car on the road and not just designing it, has become easier you i think you you could not easily but you could you could partner up with like a magna and and get a vehicle platform from them from a essentially from a from a third party you you do your chassis and whatever there's ways around this this is not magic anymore um the and and having an electric powertrain um again to come up with one or source one is Significantly easier than, than a combustion oh, engine yeah. powertrain. So the, the barriers to entry in this industry have, have have changed a lot. But there's still a lot around, as we saw with Tesla, just assemb- physically assembling, assembling a vehicle yeah. is difficult. Um, and getting the parts. You think end price versus profit margin. This is your supply chain that's in there, right? And yeah. your manufacturing chain. And and at the moment, the industry uh, benefits from high practical barriers of entry. But you know, relying on them forever yeah. it's not smart, right? So, look, uh, this is not magic. I'm sure the industry is fully aware of this. But as we said before, it's tough to change things.
2: Yeah. I mean, and it's not, it's not possible to do overnight. Like it's not possible. You can change these giants uh, in. No, in but you could, mm. oh, you could be bolder. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I always
0: come back to the same comment. It's like, could you do more? Yeah. A lot more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's always true. Now, thanks for sharing that, you know, now I, I really want to touch a little bit about your investment side, because that's what you are doing. you love to do because uh, mobility, I would say is your, First love or second love, but investment is definitely your first love, like finding companies and investing in that. There are a lot of investment going on in different technology, like battery technology, hydrogen, fuel cell, and mobility and all. As an investor, which are the technology can innovation you are more bullish about in future? Because uh, as an investor, you need to be, think 10 years ahead rather than what's happening right now, because you need to put bet on, on these technology so, what kind of startup you are looking for when uh, you go out so and and you see startup and you say like "Wow, I want to talk to this guy. I want to meet these guys or these founder. What are those areas you are really excited about
0: well when you men man- uh, when you mention powertrain i have to uh, we, i won't I won't make tons of friends out there, but I have to admit we're not very bullish on hydrogen hmm um maybe maybe an odd one to hear from a mobility fund but um, (laughs) there's various reasons for that it's uh, as opposed to 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 electric vehicles we think they're actually really have an infrastructure hurdle Hmm. um just try to get hydrogen you can you can charge your tesla out of your power plug from your living room yeah it's gonna take two days but uh, three days but you can do it right go find hydrogen right and and when you look at this, there's a couple of good OEM studies. Um, Trayton, you know, Volkswagen Trucks has done one um, that sort of mapped the suitability of different powertrains for different use cases. And it's pretty clear that from today's perspective, um, for say, 80, 85 percent of use cases, BVs, so battery electric vehicles, yeah. are more economical and makes more sense. But there's clearly use cases where hydrogen will play a role, which is um, you need very strong power, such as uh, construction equipment, um, or for um, uh, very long haul with 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 the route f- flexibility. So where where your, for example, your route length is is less fl- plannable but they did a hard analysis and um, for, for most use cases, BV will just do fine, right? So
1: yeah.
0: um, hydrogen is an important topic. We, we, we look at this more as, an, as a general energy transition topic, but there's lots of investments that need to be made that are not suitable for venture capital. They're very capital intensive. We're talking about infrastructure investments, pipeline storage tanks you name it, this is not there's not there's technology. It's infrastructure so different different check sizes different returns. So that's why we're not looking at this at the moment really from from a technology investment point of view, because the the commercialization cycle is way too long. On this now. Yeah. Um, uh, is it important yeah. But not for mobility in the next 15 years
2: thanks for sharing that perspective. Uh, I, I really, I mean, I agree with you and I disagree with you because hydrogen, I feel they have certain use cases, the heavy uh, use, week, heavy commercial yes. vehicle and all, but Tesla is proving again wrong. They launch the Texa, Tesla Semi, which is a big track and they deliver, actually they deliver to Pepsi and they, they are doing uh, actual route, the yep. field route. So, so we need to see how the comparison between electric and hydrogen will, will go. But but I agree with you, electric will solve a lot of things and hydrogen will have certain use cases to solve. I that's mean, sometimes true. I feel funny. A lot of train companies are now implementing hydrogen and I feel like that already clean, man. You're using electric. So <laughs> electricity, why you need hydrogen?
0: <laughs> yeah. Although in the US, for example, many trains are still diesel, right? Yeah, that's true. So... Um, but again, whether you put the diesel in a power plant or in a train, right? You can argue uh, it's it's more efficient um, in a power plant, obviously. Um, but um, no. So um, Musk correctly said that the energy efficiency ratio is significantly higher from electrification to compared to combustion engines, which is true. Yeah, lose you lose a lot of energy and heat. Um, so, for example, the efficiency for for a diesel engine is about 42 44 percent, and for mm. gasoline engine is about twenty-five-ish. Yeah. So it's 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 so electrifying makes principally a lot of sense. Uh, with with hydrogen is more the the lead cycle and the capital intensity at the moment that is not suitable. We think it's, it might be much more useful for uh, long-term energy storage. So for example, if you have a lot of renewable energy, such as wind energy, solar energy, the, you you might have that infrastructure installed in a region where there is a certain weather cyclicality mm-hmm. where you want more mm-hmm. energy um, from one season to another. Um, hydrogen is expected to play a role there going forward so and again it's it's it will be a part of the entire ecosystem an important yeah. one yeah um, yeah yeah it uh, will be
2: it will be an important part that, of the that will,
0: you know when people talk to me about autonomous vehicles or electrification I'm, I'm warning them these things are you know often way more strongly deployed already than they think yeah and on hydrogen i'm the opposite i'm like it will come. I have no doubt, but it will take more time. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. No, I agree with you. Sometimes, you know, the people are more bullish about things which are which are not true right now, or which will take more time. And sometimes they are not that it's bullish, okay. which are.
0: <laughs> we don't know everything. Uh, yeah. We know that much, and um, I think um, it always needs somebody who is bullish and and, and pursues something because that's what drives innovation. So I hope there's tons of people who are massively bullish on H2 in the next five years. Oh, you need yeah. that, you need that.
2: Yeah. I agree, now that's a great point. Uh, you need people who are more bullish about things because then only the innovation happens because sometimes all these ideas look stupid uh, till the time you see them in reality. Like electric vehicle 10 years back, nobody believed that it will happen. And now yeah. the whole industry is shifting toward electric vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. Now, my next question is, you mentioned that uh, the Vector partner is a series A fund. So you are investing in these early stage uh, startup. I mean, at even series A fund, you doesn't always have a big traction. So most of these companies are either achieving some kind of a product market fit or they are having a little bit of traction, but still you're not fully sure about uh, how the future look like. So mm-hmm. it, it make a you know risky bet. So you need to really evaluate this company properly. To, to make a decision and invest. So my question is like, what do you look when you invest in these company? Do you have any checklist which they need to follow or complete or do you have any specific due diligence process? Like some of the VCs say, oh, we look for founders, we look for market, but what's your checklist or due diligence process? Mm. What's your secret? <laughs> we are actually
0: quite picky to be frank. <laughs>
2: I can <laughs> see that
0: <laughs> so we, we we definitely have we, have on this. we, we, we look at uh, businesses obviously holistically um, so just having a great founder, just having a great idea, it's not enough and um, so I feel when somebody says, oh I just look for the best founder it's marketing talk um, it's not enough um, a couple of things are really important to us um, and every Every fund, every manager has has a has obviously a different stack of criteria. But um, for example, for us, it's super important that technology is really at the core of the business, right? So you come across lots of opportunities. There's, there's a clear a revenue potential. There's a clear sort of commercialization idea and a clear market. But it's not it's not technology driving it. When I'm like you know um not for us right mm. uh maybe better for for a um a um a b2c fund um you know a generalists um, much more suitable for, for, for those kind of guys mm. secondly is um, um, scalability as i said before is very important mm. for us right so um, we we try to stay away from topics that we feel have regional applicability or
1: yeah.
0: or just a development tool. They need to have a, a a purpose by themselves to generate revenue with a broader market, not just a development tool. Unless you're like Adobe, right? <laughs> it's different, right? <laughs> um, um, but. Um, that's that's obviously a different ballgame. But um, the, the 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 ability to scale the business um, across the pond by virtually by virtue globally is very important for us. It needs to have a cross-regional applicability. And 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 one thing that's also super important for us is normally the idea needs to be transformative. Mm. Um, you you can achieve a lot with just incremental change and just taking an idea putting two things together it's all fine we we try to look at things for example like we said for example on on ee architecture right we know how transformative what a gatekeeper this will be for data-based businesses revenue models in the transportation sector right so we look, we try to identify topics that, that really does do fundamentally change the game. And sometimes we're lucky on that. And It yeah. uh, doesn't mean that we're not intrigued by businesses that, that are sometimes feel more like an incremental change or a di- digitalization of something. Yeah. Um, um, but ideally they, they really transform the game. But uh, I think I'm honest, honest enough to say that it doesn't always need to be the case. Um, it doesn't need to be a Microsoft. You know, you can mm. make, you can create a beautiful business just by doing something really better than everybody else at the moment, right? And yeah. in that. In yeah. And um, in terms of what people need to bring to the table, I mean, look, we, we typically started Series A, right? Which means that, um companies in a b2b space are in series a not yet revenue generating necessarily it's very different to b 2 C where it's just a straight curve and multi- yeah. multi- the revenue multiples that's, that's all bollocks. um it needs to be a product with 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 or a version of a product with whom with which you can go to a client and have this product market feedback loop and you need to be able to 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 start that, integrate the product, see how it how it goes, refine it, right? To start this sales cycle, this is this is very important for us. Um, we we do look at seed situations here and then, as I said, yeah. Um, it's typically the more techier top, topics where mm. we feel it's important. We really like it. There's a certain Combination of things that make us feel, oh, we're going to do the Series A anyway, so let's just do it right now as well.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah catch them early. You know, if, if I you, hope they if give
0: you, you a little bit of a better feeling for what we value.
2: No, I think I think it's great, and and I love uh, your honesty because a lot of time like you rightly mentioned, some people say, oh, we look for founder, and we just look for market traction. But you, for you, the underlying technology transformation how transformative it is and then scalability because that's very very much important if you are in b2b scale you cannot yeah. work in a one geography
0: of course we look at the founders of course we looked at, at traction, but traction can come in many ways yeah. right and in a non-b2c space because most of the things we touch are pretty b2b heavy um, traction comes in different forms it's reaching certain milestones um
2: Oh, great. Great. Thanks for sharing that. In fact, that's my last question because uh, I know you're very focused on B2B space. And with the current market condition, we all know the market is is down and there are low funding activities. Some people say we are in recession. It's it's different voice. So what is your advice to the founder, especially in the mobility sector, the portfolio company you're working with, and do you think it's a time where the founder should focus from B2C to B2B? That's the that's area to play where, you know, if you have a couple of good contracts, you can sail through because B2C, there is no, like not very high predictability. So what what is your play here and what is your serious advice to the founders?
0: I mean, founders should stick to their, their business idea, right? Mm-hmm. But obviously don't start an idea that that's not going to get funding. I think what doesn't get funding at the moment is is you know the sort of a revenue model where you need to purchase a dollar of revenue for one and a half dollars, right? So that works on a cyclical basis. Um, I think I'd stay away from topics that what we internally call that require behavioral beta for an exit, right? Mm. Uh, if you if you if you flush money into a market and try to create a market and try to be the first, that works financially and return-wise if you have an exit environment like during the last three four years, right? Yeah. Now yeah. that can't be your base case, man. Right? That's like really. And so, if you feel a a topic, whether it's B two C or B two B, requires a certain exit environment. Um, to even survive in a base case, that's not good, right? Mm. So, but this is this is tricky because, as I said before, founders are often engineers, mm. and 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 they look at top line. Great, right? We we've been around the block for a while.
1: We yeah, IPO <laughs>
0: companies, we've sold companies. We have a pretty good feeling for. What an equity investor wants to see at time of IPO, what a strategic want to see how they think about it, who to talk to, what are the make or buy windows, right? So we have a more cynical view, I think, on what the end game can be. And I think the more a founder can educate himself really on what an end game for a business can be, it will do him only the best. Right. Great point. So, can you value business at this stage? No way. Right. You can't look at the numbers and value. It's different topic. Right. But if if the question is, if I'm creating this type of business, right, what what can what I'm trying what what am I trying to build in the next ten years? Is this going to be asset heavy? Is it not? Right. Is, it, is this a business that can grow for a longer time or is, is it gonna plateau quickly? All of this tells me that the founder needs to have a feeling for what is my P&L and balance sheet structurally looking like 10 years down the road. Yeah. That tells yeah. me how other people will look at it, right? Um, but again, this is just one dimension they should consider. The second thing, They should look at revenues, revenues,
2: revenues.
0: (laughs) Why it's their best line of defense. It's their best line of defense. Um, if shit, it's the fan revenues can help you keep your lights on. Right. And I see this over and over again, that founders, particularly in a deeper tech B2B space, tend to think once they have the product the revenues and the customers will come hmm. and i appreciate it's, it's 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 a big shock for an engineer to do a cold call and to rattle the drum Not and well. you know selling a washing machine to bosch right it, that's what you need to do that's what it is <laughs> to build a business and selling ice cubes in the north pole that that's need to be your base strategy and yeah. And you need to develop that DNA and that approach and that hustle early, early on, not too early, but early yeah. on. And guide your strategy around what helps you do this better, faster, and more economically. And, and the other thing is maybe that um, they should only raise as much money as they need.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, Founders, I feel, they, they they almost have the fiduciary duty to take as much as they can, right? Somebody gives them 20 million instead of 10. Take it, right? Run. <laughs> um, can't blame them, right? It's like great achievement. Yeah. Think ahead, right? Don't be greedy in evaluation, valuation. It's going to bite you the next round, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I see this a lot, again, in the B2B, in the deeper tech space. Um Obviously, money supply is cyclical. Um, but one thing normally doesn't change, and that is that, particularly in B2D, in the deeper tech B2B space, the core technology is typically developed by the same 5, 10, 15 guys, yeah,
1: right? Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and for the first years, that doesn't change, right? So you can layer on that, but the marginal... Output on the money you put in—it's a—it's it, a, it's a non, non-attractive slope, right? So, getting the balance, the, the the tipping point right, as of when to load up on money in order to scale and, and add more engineers or add more salespeople, is is a difficult choice to make for founders. Mm. At not in except for. Except for the last couple of years it, it's a luxury question, right? Yeah. But um, I think thinking about what you really need to achieve to reach your core mission, your core target, how much money do you need? Obviously think of a buffer, but yeah. go for what you need rather than what's nice to have. Yeah. Because in the end I feel you know, good ideas will always get money. It's easier said than done founders will hate hate me for that sentence because fundraising is is a terrible business but um again this can help
2: no i I think i think all these are great points i i really love what you said is the customer acquisition cost in a in a good period you can spend 1.5 to earn just one even one cent and that's what companies were doing they were spending crazy amount of money to get such a small revenue, like all these delivery companies, 10 minute deliveries, and all. It, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah.
0: People were not stupid either, right? It's like you're creating your own market, right? Yeah. And then you hope that you can move that market to profitability, right? A bit like the Uber model. Um, that works if capital is. Is available yeah. in abundance, which is a little bit driven by interest rates. Although money supply is not really steered by interest rates anymore that that much as it used to be in the past. But again, that doesn't change exit dynamics really, right? So money supply doesn't touch that too much. You can argue that money supply is cyclical, and then the exit there's there's waves of good exit windows. I get that, but again, can't be your base case, right? Mm. So
2: so that's, that's a that's a great point. Thanks for sharing. I mean, any founder who are listening, it's it's great point for them. Raise money you need, not what nice to have, because it's good to have more money in the bank, but that also spoil you and you make more of investment, a uh, lot of crazy expenditure. You know, yesterday I was talking with one founder and he was asking me, like, I have eight employees, should I have a few more? And I was like, do you need what? them? Do you need them? And what is the margin value they will bring? Like if you if you increase yeah. your manpower, what is the revenue jump uh, you will see? If you don't see much, yeah. then why are you increasing it?
0: Often is, uh, you know, close buddy of ours, Lars always said like, is there a guy you really need around the table to, yeah. to make other step? Let's get that person, right? <laughs> so it needs to be mission driven, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, no, thank you so much, Sebastian. I mean, we we talk about mobility, we talk about investment, and uh, and all these technology trends. So thanks for sharing your perspective. I really enjoyed it. Now at the end we have this rapid fire question round, and it's basically to know a little more personal side of you oh. and what you think and <laughs> what you feel. So Go if you're ready, I'll I'll start with that. Should. Okay. So my first question is: If you were not in the private equity and investment space, what other profession you would have selected?
0: I would have probably studied physics or archaeology. archaeology. I know it's a stretch.
2: Those <laughs> <laughs> those two are really interesting topic. In fact, yesterday I was talking with somebody and we were discussing about physics. So it's it's such a fascinating topic. So so great to yeah. hear.
0: Particularly these days. Yeah.
2: Oh, particularly these days. Uh, uh, now my second question: Like you work and and in fact I mentioned that you're a global citizen because you. Lived, work, and travel all over, all over the places in different parts of the world. Which is your favorite city in the world?
0: Ah, difficult one. <laughs> I love Hong Kong. Yeah. But probably I haven't spent enough time there. <laughs> I agree with the people who I hate it. Yeah. But I, I
2: love it. I love it. Oh, it's a it's an amazing city. It's an amazing city. The high rises and uh, the way people work and move. It's a, it's a great city to be in. Now, if you if you love Hong Kong, the one of the thing Hong Kong has is uh, the good public transit system or mobility system. People don't own car. But I would say, which city, according to you, has the best transit network in the world?
0: Uh, I'm biased. I'm from <laughs> I'm here from London, and London actually has a it's an interesting mix because they have mass, massive, airports,
1: yeah,
0: um, but also massive and very intensively used subway system. It's actually it's quite connected. So yeah. uh, let's we'll not talk about the road transport in London, which is not good. <laughs> I could say very impolite things, but um, the the public transports London is actually quite quite ahead quite of. Nice other places that I
2: know no it's a it's a favorite city for many people you know London uh, they have a good uh, system and I have good friend at TFL so they'll be happy to hear that you you love it now next question can be taken for you I don't know if you have answer for that like which is your favorite startup in mobility sector or any favorite startup in your portfolio (laughs) (laughs) using
0: your favorite child
2: (laughs) yeah
0: that's that's actually impossible to say but it amazes, it, it amazes me how, how each of them impresses me on a day-by-day basis with, with what they do. Um, that's it's impossible to pick.
2: Impossible to pick. But, but any particular thing which attract you in the, in the startups?
0: It's the combination of what they focus on, how they do it, who they are. And, and each of the startups is so different in their DNA yeah um, and their 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 team composition, which goes back to my point, right? You can't just say, "Oh, I'll take the best founder or this and this. it just highlights for me that every business is different, yeah. right yeah
2: so yeah, no, I agree. It's sometimes the founder team and sometimes the market tracks and sometimes the technology, but you have to find the best of the mix Now, my last question is if you can change one thing in life, what would it be?
0: Oh. Oh, probably get <laughs> get up earlier.
2: Get up earlier, <laughs> but, but, but that
0: that would reduce reduce my constant desire for good coffee. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: so it means nothing.
0: I'm sure there's many things. Ah. I'm sure there's many things. Uh, how did Churchill say? Sorry for the long lists. I didn't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: No, that's a great point. That's a great point to end with. Uh, so thank you so much, Sebastian. I really enjoyed uh, you know, our conversation and your point. And I, I really like the perspective because you are not being a technocrat and investor. Your points are coming more from a consumer side, the end consumer point, which is, which is amazing to see, which I think I hope all the founders and investor look that point because founders sometimes are so obsessed with their product, they forget about the customer
0: yeah look it's important it's a product i think a founder needs to be proud of the technology they uh they put together right um but not to forget that it needs to solve a problem right
2: yeah yeah well thank you so much thank you so much for sharing your feedback
0: my pleasure my pleasure thanks for having me just much appreciated
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be inviting some other inspiring guests in the coming week. You can subscribe to this podcast online to get the notification for the next episode. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please do write to us at info at the rate mobility-innovator.com. I look forward to see you next time. Thank you.